I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello. My name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And you're listening to Spaces Podcasts. Welcome to Spaces. For our returning listeners, thank you for coming back. And one quick reminder, uh, don't forget Spaces Podcast Live at Four Sons Brewery in Huntington Beach on Monday, December 17th. Uh, it'll be 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Please come out. It's uh, We're celebrating our one-year anniversary, so we'd love to see you guys, whoever can come. Um, we have a lot of games planned, and uh, we'll be discussing breweries and catching up on some of our best and worst moments <laughs> throughout the year. So come join us. Uh, today we're discussing airports, but before we jump into that, I want to catch up. Michelle, you've been traveling the world back from Thailand. I, I know uh, you got some good stories. I saw a few of your photos. Yeah, I uh, I just got back from Thailand last Tuesday, um, which was amazing. I, I think I'd mentioned this in an earlier podcast that traveling is my most favorite thing, despite Jason thinking that it's the river. It's not the river. It's, <laughs> it's by far traveling the world and seeing the world and experiencing uh, the world. And so, yeah, we got back uh, Tuesday of last week and... Uh, this podcast today is very timely that we're talking about airports. Airports are, I just love airports. I really do. I've always loved airports since a yeah, you, very you, young age. You I'm said fascinated. that. <laughs> What's that? You said that. And I was like, who loves airports? I'm just fascinated by them. And I don't know. There's, 
I just get this really exciting feeling about airports and I like going to airports for people watching. Um, usually when you go to an airport, it means you're, you're traveling somewhere, which ties well into what I enjoy doing, which is traveling. So for me, it's just a really, um, you know, the airports bring about a, a good feeling, but I think from a, from a design and space perspective, I'm, I said this in an email and in kind of one of our pre-conversations um, to this podcast is that the one thing in this world that is uniform are airports. I mean, it is, it is crazy how uniform airports are from signage to uh, the layouts of, of um, you know, where certain shops are of the shops and the stores that are included uh, from the services on the tarmac um, even from the catering companies. Uh, so, you know, sky chefs, for example, mm-hmm. I mean, and I didn't really even think about it until this, this last trip where, you know, we landed in, it, we left Los Angeles LAX and of course sky chefs was there. And then we went to Hong Kong. We had a transfer layover in Hong Kong only a couple of hours, but you look out onto the runway and it's sky chefs everywhere. You land in Bangkok, same thing, sky chefs everywhere. We did a side trip down to Phuket landed at the Phuket airport, sky chefs everywhere. And it's just, it's kind of fascinating when you really stop and think about how there's, you know, the one thing that's sort of uniform that is always the same, that every person of of every nation, uh, gender, race, sex, or like whatever their origin is, you can go to an airport and you can find your way and -hmm. you know how it works. It's all the same. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's fascinating to me. So, (laughs) yeah. I haven't had anything too uh, too crazy happen over the last couple of weeks. Uh, pretty much the same same old same old. The, the one thing that was different, I got a tattoo, a new tattoo yesterday or a couple of days ago, I think. Um, so for where the... of what? <laughs> <laughs> so on my side. So for the listeners that have been following along from the beginning, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I. Dog, our dog had um, passed this past July, uh, so his birthday was this past weekend, and uh, we decided to go out and get tattoos that uh, of his birthday. So we both have that. Mine is on my side. So, yeah, decided randomly to to join her. It was it was her original idea. She was set on doing it, and then I was like, ah, I'll do it too. <laughs> Was uh was that your only dog, or have you had other pets in the past? <laughs> so I brought that up there. Uh, I've had a few dogs in the past, but this is the longest uh, standing dog that I that I had. Um, and I don't remember their birthdays because I was like, I should go back and add the other ones because uh, those were like from when I was a kid. So I don't even remember their birthdays, unfortunately. So bummed about that. But well, that's really cool. Yeah. Are you still in pain? Yeah, it's uh, it's getting starting to get itchy and uh, a little irritating here and there, but uh, dealing with it, it's not too bad. Yeah, so um, let's jump into the conversation today. We'll, we're uh, again, we're talking about airports, and airports are another one of those complex project types. It has a lot of elements, like Michelle mentioned. Um, when you're considering the design and construction and development of an airport, you have to consider transportation, pedestrian traffic, signage, transferring property, 
uh, security, food, retail, and all other components that I'm probably not even thinking of right now. And to assist in that conversation, today's guest is a architect and senior associate at Gensler with experience and knowledge in implementing advanced technology in architectural design from building information modeling, known as BIM, and integrated project delivery to computational design, data visualizations, and digital fabrication. In addition to his roles as BIM leader, he's a practicing architect with experience in aviation, education, and sports practice areas. Ben Rainier. Ben, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of go into depth about, uh, either in your background or a little bit more about Gensler for our listeners? Uh, so I'll briefly touch on, on Gensler. Gensler is actually, um, I think at this point, the largest architectural firm in the United States. Um, there are other AE firms that are larger, but we have the we're, we are architecture only, so we're a design firm first and foremost. We've got a really broad area of practice, and uh, some of those areas that you touched on, the sports and, um, and education and aviation, those are the practice areas I've always worked in with Gensler, um, large public projects primarily. But for the last few years, I've really been focused on a single client. We tend to, to, to focus on clients, and so, and it's been my pleasure. I work out of the San Diego office, and so I've been um, working very closely with the local San Diego airport for the last few years on a series of projects. And so I've gotten to know one airport very, very well and, and really uh, had to, a, little, a, a length of experience. It's been really, really pleasant, especially since it's my, my hometown airport, and, uh, and I, I get to feel like I'm making an impact uh, with, for, for my, for my friends and family. So that's been, that's been great. Yeah. Very cool. So you're doing a lot of, uh, kind of remodel and addition work to the airport. Yeah. So the, you know, some of the projects, um, there are like, there's a lot of growth actually right now in, in, in aviation. So there's a lot of new, um, new terminal expansion and work, but the last few projects that I've been involved in were some renovation projects, um, at, at the, our local terminal two, which is the, the latest terminal, um, uh, parking project uh, at the, that expanded the you know uh, it was a million square foot parking structure that is part of the uh, part of the airport and then um, the new international arrivals facility which is um, an extension to an existing terminal as well. Um, there's also some upcoming projects that we're getting prepared to to propose on that are new terminal projects so they're continuing to to, to get bigger and better at. Uh, at this airport, and and um, I've gotten to learn a lot more of the the sort of history and the 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 layout of that of that particular uh, facility. So that's been great. But you know, really, we operate as a regional network, and so we talk a lot about projects the the worldwide. And yeah. um, as you said uh, earlier, the uh, you know there is a certain similarity between airports and aviation is its own special kind of practice. And uh, I've spent the last couple of years really building up my knowledge of how uh how these facilities work and and how they uh and what they need and wh where they're going great segue so to understand where we're going you gotta know where we came from and to do that you gotta go back in time 11th century humans have long had a fascination with flight 
Elmer of Malmesbury tested his winged limbs, a wing system that connected to his hands and feet. According to a successor, Elmer mistook a fable for truth. He climbed to the top of his monastery, approximately 82 feet above the ground, and in an attempt to fly like the Greek myth of Daedalus, fastened his wing contraption to his hands and feet, he jumped from the monastery, flying approximately an eighth of a mile before the turbulent wind forced him to lose control, and he fell to the ground below, breaking both of his legs. A number of flying machine concepts were presented over the next several centuries, but it was Wilbur and Orville Wright that took the major leap towards today's airplane by introducing controls and with the help of their mechanic, Charlie Taylor, a gasoline engine light enough and powerful enough to propel the flying machine. Like many inventions, government participation would spur further development, and in late 1907, the U.S. Army Signal Corps asked for an aircraft from the Wright brothers. After World War I, the Soviet Union seized on aviation as an icon of the new technical world. Aerofloat, the state airline, not only served propaganda purposes, but subsequently emerged as an indispensable medium for rapid transportation and a visible means of knitting together its sprawling divergent regions. In the United States, under the auspices of the U.S. Post Office, an airmail operation was launched in 1918 as a wartime effort to stimulate aircraft production and to generate a pool of trained pilots. The airlines were getting a subsidy to carry mail in their very earliest stages. As a matter of fact, they really didn't want to carry passengers because they didn't have to feed the mail, they just put it on the plane. It was a simple process. Europe embraced aviation, but in the U.S., the post office, having established a workable airmail system and a considerable clientele, yielded to congressional pressures and with the Contract Airmail Act of 1925, turned over the mail service to private contractors. The following year, the Air Commerce Act established a bureau that implemented procedures and standards, and in combination with aggressive private competition, American aviation significantly accelerated aviation technology and aircraft performance. The United States surged forward behind a private organization, the Daniel Guggenheim Fund for the Promotion of Aeronautics which spearheaded a milestone experiment in 1928 where a pilot would respond to a combination of electronic signals and airplane instruments, becoming the first successful blind flight. This meant that airlines could schedule flights at night or flights that were previously grounded due to weather conditions. By the end of the 1920s, most major cities in the United States had established municipal airfields. Airfields at the time consisted of dirt runways located on dedicated areas of farmland, but the various New Deal government construction programs after the Great Depression improved and built additional airfields with paved all-weather runways. Under federal guidance, major airfields also acquired control towers and radio equipment as part of an air traffic control system. In the Northeast, a long-standing rivalry between Newark, New Jersey and New York City, New York on who would be the center of traffic, New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia made a move that would eventually establish a new precedent in air travel. LaGuardia, as a former pilot in World War I, 
was familiar with and firmly believed in the future of air travel. I don't believe that as much progress has ever been made in any branch of science or in any activity that has been made in aviation during the past 21 years. What is contemplated, I believe, is almost challenges the imagination, both as to size of things, as to speed, as well as safety. And as a publicity stunt in 1934, he refused to deplane after landing on a TWA flight from Pittsburgh to Newark, declaring that his ticket showed his destination as New York. TWA agreed to fly the mayor and several reporters on to Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn. A press conference that followed conveyed to the citizens of New York that it was time for a new, modern facility closer to Manhattan. Ground was broken in 1937 to create a 558-acre airport in Flushing, Queens on an airfield that was previously occupied by the Gala Amusement Park. Within just a year, LaGuardia was the busiest airport in the world. Early airports were major centers of leisure activity, often attracting more visitors than passengers. LaGuardia attracted almost 250,000 visitors per month, reaching a peak of 7,000 in one day, compared with the maximum daily throughput of only 3,000 passengers. In 1929, Berlin's airport reported 750,000 visitors and boasted a restaurant that could seat 3,000 people on the roof of the passenger terminal. The status as major social centers was reflected in airport design, especially where the requirements of catering, observation decks, and parking were paramount. One of LaGuardia's major features was its skywalk observation deck that wrapped around the terminal building's airside. For 10 cents, customers enjoyed a sweeping view of the airport ramp area and beyond. The first year's revenue from those turnstiles amounted to $150,000 in dimes, the equivalent of $2.5 million today. Across the field, the Marine Air Terminal became the port for Pan American Airways' elegant flying boats that transported wealthy customers to Europe. The Art Deco structure was designed in 1939 by William Delano. LaGuardia Airport served as one of the main departure points for the Military Air Transport Command during World War II. Following World War II, air travel was exploding as a modern and glamorous form of transportation and the development of commercial jet travel called for a new approach to airport design. Architect Errol Saarinen had already been recognized for his theatrical, expressive approach to modernism. His designs for the St. Louis Gateway Arch and the TWA Terminal at JFK Airport demonstrated his sculptural, curvaceous take on modernism. He was commissioned for the Dulles Airport in Virginia. He studied airports across the country and came up with a terminal design that expresses ideas of flight and movement in its simple wing-like form. His monumental, yet minimalist terminal, constructed of glass, steel, and concrete, 
with a curved roof supported by cables, still provides an open, airy, and modern environment. One of the modern innovations Saarinen incorporated at Dulles Airport was the use of the mobile lounges to transport passengers to airplanes. On the other coast, LAX in Los Angeles, California catered to its growing car culture. Architecturally, LAX was very different from Dulles. William Schoenfeld, Deputy Executive Director of Los Angeles Department of Airports from 1970 to 1994, explains how he viewed the airport. I've often referred to this airport as a, an airport without any exterior architecture. When you drive in, the buildings on uh, either side are one and two stories, and uh, you see a road and you see glass fronts, and you don't see any structures. LAX improved on a LaGuardia system of separating arrival and departure by incorporating an innovative horseshoe roadway and a system that separated arrivals and departures before visitors even exited their cars. The reason for this in Los Angeles is that we did not want to make the passenger walk further than 40 feet from where he unloaded his baggage at the curb to the face of the ticket counter. Other innovations included at LAX were fueling hydrants built into the apron of the tarmac, an innovative baggage service with a new carousel system, state-of-the-art control tower, and later constructed an outlandish landmark building titled the Theme Building, which represented the potential of the aviation industry. Until the 1960s, airport security was relatively simple, requiring nothing more than civilian police to provide protection against conventional crimes such as theft, pickpocketing, vandalism, and breaking and entering. However, in the 1960s, civil aviation became a recognized target for politically motivated crimes. And although the first aircraft hijacking occurred in 1931 in Peru, such events were rare, with no more than a handful each year, and generally without any political motive. But by the late 1960s, politically motivated hijackings to Cuba had become common. In 1969, for example, there were 87 hijackings worldwide, of which 71 were related to Cuba, which typically granted political asylum to the hijackers. To combat the crimes of hijacking and terrorism, international conventions established recommendations for minimum conditions for appropriate security countermeasures to be adopted in an international context. However, the recommendations needed to be translated into individual national laws. And countries that had no history of domestic civil terrorism believed that only international flights were real targets for terrorist attacks. Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh? I'm going outside today. Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. It's quiet. It's too quiet. Quiet, 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 quiet. Number two. Yeah. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. La espera de, de mayores informaciones, saber qué fue lo que ocurrió, cómo fue que este... Apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. Wow. 
David, we're going, David, we're going to cut, to cut you off. President Bush is speaking. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. In 2001, the September 11th attacks transformed the thinking surrounding airport security in general. In a period of two hours, a single terrorist organization wreaked an unprecedented level of destruction in the United States by using hijacked airplanes as missiles. Authorities responded with an intensification of security procedures at airports around the world. Passenger and baggage search procedures were made significantly more thorough. Passenger terminals increased the level and sophistication of security equipment, the number of staff employed in security procedures, and the space provided for security operations. The threat of terrorist attacks meant that, for the foreseeable future, and probably permanently, civil aviation could not return to a situation of relaxed security. More than 100 airports around the world handle at least 10 million passengers each per year. Nearly half of these are in the United States. Dozens of airports regularly move more than 30 million passengers on a yearly basis, and almost a dozen handle more than 50 million. Airports now require extensive facilities, runways, taxiways, firefighting and rescue services, passenger and cargo handling facilities, access to car parking and public transportation, lighting, navigational and approach aids, catering and retail, meteorology, governmental inspection, and security. With increased demand for air travel, architects, engineers, and builders have the difficult task of making continual improvements to one of the most complex systems in our society. But, through careful planning and considerate design, airports have a bright future of efficiency and leisure where travelers regain a sense of comfort and security. Okay, Ben, as we just heard, there are a lot of things to consider when designing an airport. What are some of the common issues that you try to resolve when you're working on an airport? They're very, as you said, they're complex spaces. There's a, a really sort of um, whole series of problems that just have to do with that complexity, making sure that you're taking a whole broad base of uh, points of view into account and since it's a public agency they have multiple stakeholders and making sure that you've accommodated everybody's needs from maintenance to um, down to, to the the art director while still thinking about the passenger experience and keeping the project on schedule and budget is usually a, a, a in itself just managing that process is a big big problem I would say that 
the 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 thing that we focus on the most trying to make sure that we where we would feel the worst if we if we missed it was is in really nailing that that passenger experience and that's become more and more important over the years because airports have become facilities that are focused more and more on things other than just making your flight they've become centers of you know of uh, shopping centers and and food centers and even culture centers and so there's been this real focus on what you can uh, what what the passengers experiencing when they're going through it, getting them to spend a little longer, spend a little more money while they're in the airport, um, and and enriching their experience, and and that's the the thing that we've been, you know, working on the hardest over the last you know few decades. I have to imagine one of the other challenges then would be minimal disruption to flight patterns, particularly on expansion projects, um, where you know, whether design and construction is happening or not, the show goes on, right? There's, there's never, it's kind of like a hospital. Hospitals never close. Um, Abs- kind of like, yes. why do they, why do they even need locks on the door? And airports to, is, you know, for the most part don't close either. Now I know that certain airports obviously have hours in which flights don't arrive or depart, but for the most part, airports particularly international airports are open at all hours of the day and so kind of that minimal disruption in expansion projects or um renovation projects i I bet is a a challenge it it absolutely is and you know compounded by the fact that there are the the infrastructure at the airport um because really you are modifying a piece of public infrastructure while it's operating and you almost never especially at the airports i've been working at you, you never get carte blanche to close an entire um area and then and, and have um have unfettered access and so you're working uh in hours that you can that you can get and you're you're doing it piecemeal i i've i sort of i probably take that complexity for granted actually i've had such great construction partners on projects that are used to the 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 process of submitting you know individual tickets to to move a door and dealing with um airside access for for employees and security but it is absolutely you know you can get uh they're 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 extremely sensitive i would say that that airport clients the things that they are the most sensitive to are disruption to their operations and so there are so many ways that you can you can you could ruin the day for the airport whether it's cutting a a utility line that wasn't located perfectly on an as-built or uh, making too much noise and messing up the experience for some passengers in, in a nearby space. And so there's a certain amount of attention to detail that's required that I don't think a lot of contractors are up to. And the ones that are, are, are people who have a sort of unprecedented ability to, to pay attention to quality and to, uh, and to schedule. But the security portion of that, I have to imagine, is does that go into your design? I mean, how you sort of lock off or manage security as construction is progressing? It absolutely does impact uh, the design of a lot of projects and especially the site planning because everybody, you know, the, the, broadly speaking, there are, um, there's airside and there's landside when you're talking about projects and airside is everything that's beyond the secure uh, barrier that you would associate with the, you know, the terminal side of the airport, everything past ticketing in, in the post TSA world. So every every employee, every construction or design employee that you wouldn't have access has to go through a security vetting process and has to badge in and badge out every day. And if you have tools, you have to there's tool 
pool inventory. There's others, lots of security rules in place, especially in the U.S., to make sure that um, everybody is safe on the air crazy. side. And yeah, so, crazy. Tool, tool, like it, managing tools. Imagine that. Yes, individual. Yeah, it, it is. It's. I mean, it's. It's very stringent, and they're they're um, absolutely humorless about it uh, at airports. They do not. There's no. You know, you could you could have been there for years, and the rules will always apply. You get challenged for your badges. Um, I, this is something that's taken. You know, it's the most important thing to most to, to to all the all the clients I've had, but it can affect the project in a way in so much as. Um, it's a lot easier to do landside work, obviously. And so you'll phase projects and you'll site projects in such a way that you can move the security barrier temporarily so that you can keep people on that landside so you can keep them working and you don't have to worry about badge in, badge out, and, and, and a lot of this other stuff that slows you down. And it makes the material delivery and everything like that a lot easier as well. So that's obviously a, a big, you know, it, like I said, I take I take it for granted because uh, the people I work with make it so easy for me to get through that process. But it is um, it's something that you that hits you over the head when you first start, and then you you rapidly sort of get used to the world of airports and of aviation, and you sort of start to. Uh, I, I joke that I don't I don't really go to the airport, at least my local airport. And I don't think I'm of travel anymore. I go there, and I'm just it's it's where I work, and so. <laughs> I don't necessarily have the same reactions to to going there that I, you know, it just feels like a Wednesday. You um, get the same warm and fuzzies that I do when I go to the airport. <laughs> Other airports, yes. My own, unfortunately, no. I, I mean, I just, I'm like, oh, I'll go get lunch. But yeah, and I, that, that's that kind of logistical battle. When I work with designers in our office, I like to impress upon them that it, it has to look like a five-star hotel, but it has to perform like a bus station it has to be absolutely it's an indestructible piece of public infrastructure that has to look really luxurious and that combination is very hard to achieve and it has to do with the fact that this is simultaneously a luxury for a lot of people going traveling is, is an enormously enjoyable thing and it's and in people it's a special part of a lot of people's lives but at the same time the, this is a, a piece of infrastructure that is critical to the economy of the of the of the area, it's critical to local business, it's critical to public safety. And there that combination is not one that you really see anywhere else. So there's a lot of pressure, but it, but there's also a lot of really intelligent people that go into that world and then know it backwards and forwards and that I'm lucky to work with on a daily basis. So Ben, I wanted to dig into this a little bit more about, you mentioned kind of the, almost like a shopping mall inside the airport and I saw some of the, I guess, ranked the best airport in the world was the, uh, was it Changi? 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 Shanghai, yeah. Yeah. Airport in Singapore, which serves just some stats for the listeners. It serves 62.2 million passengers um, in 2017 with more than 373,000 landings and takeoffs from over 400 destinations around the world. And it's been voted the world's best airport for six consecutive years. Um, and like you mentioned, some of the higher amenities that they're starting to institute in these, uh, this particular airport has theme gardens, rooftop pool, butterfly garden, snooze lounge, which I was highly intrigued with. And, uh, and a ton of entertainment, like movie theaters, game centers, and a spa. Um, mm -hmm. 
But one of the things that I, I was kind of reading up on is this this sort of um, battle that, that we're going through as far as in the United States compared to everyone else in, in the world. They're looking at airports as more of a, um, a status symbol. So they're really putting money into all of these amenities and things like that. But since we somewhat um, led the way in airport uh, in the airport industry, we are struggling with old airports that we're trying to um, modernize, basically. And you have these limited footprints and all sorts of other issues that are um, that we're facing and trying to to modernize. The design group that I work with in has had a lot of experience doing projects in big American airports like uh, SFO, LAX, um, in JFK. Um, some of these airports are are incredibly high throughput, incredibly important, and have aging terminals that need a lot of TLC in order to bring them up to these standards. And I'm, I'm going to step back just a, a touch and talk about, you know, it's great that airports are looking at this broader experience, but at least in, in the U.S., a lot of it's actually driven by uh, economics. Now, airports are, not, are, are funded primarily through their own revenues, right? They, they do performance bonds based upon projected revenue. And uh, which means that when you see an airport project, in, especially in the U.S., it's generally not paid for by the, by taxpayers or by um, bonds leveraged on other forms of public money. They're hmm. they're basically they get if your airport airports have to grow to survive is where it kind of comes down to is they have to make money in order to keep the airport looking good. Interesting. And so you combine that with the fact that the the one traditional source of revenue, which is fees leveraged on tickets, is set was set by Congress um, probably 25 years ago at this point was the last time they agreed on a number and it was an index to inflation. And so the, the money that they can actually charge for put on put on your ticket, the amount of, that the airport can charge you know a fee to put on your ticket has been fixed for a quarter century without really being updated. And so that means that the other sources of revenue, this is parking, this is retail, this is food and beverage. Um, these are all more important than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons that airports are looking at driving up this uh, sort of passenger experience number, because that equates to a higher proportion of revenue per passenger. And that's really what's driving the game. And so that's one metric that we use when we're talking to our clients to talk about whether or not a project is successful. How long is, is the passenger spending there? How much money are they spending? What kind of, you know, how much food are they buying? Did they go to any, any of the stores? And these, and these are, are issues that, that uh, aren't things that they are traditionally really experienced with. So they've been hiring in a lot of development consultants, and we've been seeing a lot more people from the retail industry, from the food and beverage industry, coming in and becoming clients at airports because it's so important to them. Interesting. I'm notoriously that guy that that shows up five minutes before the flight, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so I'm never there to spend time. How do you how do you kind of coax me into the airport to to spend some money and hang out there a little bit longer? You know, it, it's it's hard to push on that string. Uh, you know, but. There are lots of things that we do to try to make the airport a more attractive place. One thing you can do, the easiest thing you can do for to start is to make the food better and the food more affordable, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, so there's been this this sort of sea change in how they 
do these kinds of uh, food and beverage retail experiences at airports to make the food local, to make the to to improve the quality, to uh, to to try and make sure that it, you aren't feeling like you're getting completely stiffed. And so when people start to see that, they start to m do their calculations a little different and say, okay, I'm going to show up a little bit earlier and I'm going to grab a bite tea before I get a, get a, get on the plane. The other thing you can do, you know, there's there's so many different passenger profiles, and you know, Gensler, our process is very uh, human experience driven. Mm -hmm. um, that and so we'll create a, a, all of these different profiles and and look at the airport from as many different perspectives as we can. And a lot of getting people to a, a lot of the times you're designing for people who are stuck, right? people who are transferring and they missed a flight or people that are really, really nervous about flying and they get there two hours early yeah. um, for families that have to do that. And then they, they, they get through a little earlier than they thought. And they're there with three kids. And what are they going to do? Um, that's me more than, more than, more than often is that I, you know, I've got, I travel with a, I've got a family of five and we'll overestimate the amount of time it's going to take to get everybody <laughs> through security and we'll show up and we'll have, you know, 90 minutes to blow yeah and so how do you make when people get in that situation where they they don't want to go back out of security because they're in their safe zone how do you make sure that they don't just go sit down at the gate and read a book you know how do you get them interested in walking around yeah. um and so you, you start to try to make sure that you uh we, we i talk, was just talking with somebody about this sort of uh the, this sort of sweet spot in between the two modes of failure you know, you, you don't want people to be bored, but you also don't want them to panic. And these are the psychological states we're trying to avoid. So how do you make sure that you enrich somebody's experience to where they don't feel like they're um, at a, you know, you've been at the sad airport terminal. You know what I'm talking about, where you <laughs> yeah. just, you're just, I'm going to pretend like I'm not here. Um, and without sacrificing their knowledge that they're going to make their flight, their knowledge that they know where they're going, their knowledge that they can, they can perceive correctly with the environment it's like around them and there's the it's a real delicate balance to make sure that the people are feel comfortable enough to feel like they can explore but also feel excited enough that they want to and that's the sort of the psychological space that we're working within uh for the for the passenger experience in a terminal and i think that's really interesting so um i think of a trip i took a few years ago where we had I believe if i remember correctly it was a six or seven hour layover in Johannesburg, South Africa. And when we sort of got the news of, that our layover was going to be six or seven hours, because it was just the way the flights lined up, uh, we were initially sort of, I guess, worried that we would be bored to tears or, you know, how are we going to spend six or seven hours in the airport? Little did we know Johannesburg, their, their airport is a legitimate mall. It's also a souvenir haven where you know, there were art galleries that you could go into and you could go buy sculptures or things like that. Um, and so, you know, that six or seven hours that we had actually sort of flew by and, you know, we just felt like we were shopping. And similarly, I can't tell you how many people, and we travel through uh, London Heathrow Airport quite a bit, and I have a lot of friends who sort of echo my own thoughts that that's actually a really, really fun airport to have a long layover in because the shopping mall is great. There are a bunch of great pubs where you can have fish and chips and sort of a you know London British uh, lunch or dinner experience. It's fascinating that you that you kind of talk about how you're as a designer 
really, really focused on sort of what that experience is. I, I, I feel like it, it is something that, that airports have definitely caught on to as a driver and they, they, they get it. And the number one thing that you can say, especially in actually smaller and more local airports, uh, the most important thing that you can say to them is we're going to make your place feel local um, because they're afraid of feeling generic and giving, making sure that this goes back to that, you know, keeping people's interest while not scaring them. You got to make sure that they know that they, when they walk into the airport, they go, OK, it's an airport. I know what's going on. But at the same time, they want to be, well, this is slightly, you know, this is different and this is new. And I didn't know you could get, um, you know, being able to go into this, the San Diego or the, you know, we just did an international terminal in New Zealand and bringing in all the Maori influences and the landscape stuff and the wildlife was like, it was such an important part of that project. It was really central to it um, because uh, you wanted people to feel like they had landed in New Zealand um, the minute they got off the plane. And so uh, a lot of that. What um, was that out of curiosity? I was in New Zealand in February. It's it's the it's the internet. It was the the international arrivals facility in I in the uh, in Auckland, I believe. Auckland. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been there. So my question, Ben, though, is so airports, while they focus on maybe bringing in local or cultural elements uh, to the design, the thing that really fascinates me that I mentioned earlier is at the same time there's a uniformity about every airport in the world. Yeah. I, there, I would say, let me name three things that contribute to that uniformity. One is um, the history. And, and this is a situation where it did grow um, out of, you know, a, a pretty small, you know, the history of aviation is, is fairly narrow and it's narrow and it's based out of the U.S. It's sort of the like the joke about how every uh, airline pilot in the U.S. sounds like Chuck Yeager. Because they all internalize this sort of, um, you know, U.S. military test pilot n way of speaking. And that, that actually goes, you know, if you hear somebody, uh, a pilot speaking in another language, they'll still use the same intonations because pilots are supposed to sound a certain way. And so there's a culture that's actually very American in a way. It's grew out of um, our, you know, dominance of the 20th century that created the airport as, as a thing. Um, and so that, that cultural history is very is very strong. And a lot of people that work at airports used to be pilots. Um, and and an aviation culture is its own thing. And everyone kind of pays attention to it internally. And they've internalized it. Um, another thing that is a unifying influence is the fact that a lot of the equipment and in, in, in aircraft manufacturers are global, right? You, you have basically two major manufacturers of aircraft for international flights. And um, they're both, you know, and, and then and you have maybe four companies that make uh, the vertical and horizontal transportation stuff, like moving walkways and elevators. You have um, maybe two or three companies that make these passenger boarding bridge, bridges. It's it's a small world in that sense in this in the in this world of highly specialized equipment, and a lot of things are made just for airports, like lighting that's only made for airports, seating that's only made for airports, right? Um, and then the, the third thing is that these company, the airports are always talking to each other because they're, if you think about it, airports aren't necessarily, they can be in competition with each other in certain ways, like Asian airports as hubs are in competition with each other. 
Um, but uh, more frequently, they're not in. It, it's like it's like universities. They're not in direct competition with each other, and they get more out of collaboration than they get out of direct competition. And so they're always talking about what's the best way to do X, Y, Z. Because how do we get people flying more? Because if people fly more, then we all do better. You know, it's a rising tide raises all boats kind of situation. And so the we have to keep abreast as a designer. You have to keep abreast of what's going on at all of your clients, uh, you know, comparable airports. So for this last project, we picked a ceiling system and airports are very, very, um, when it comes to design, they can be very conservative because they don't want something that they're going to have to fix. Because if you have to fix something, then you might have to close a part of the airport. And, you know, this, this whole thing about it being a continuously operating piece of infrastructure, it makes them very rightfully conservative. And so we, we proposed this very modern looking ceiling and they said, well, what, who else has used it? How can you prove to us that this is going to function properly for us and we're not going to have to go in and fix it and it's not going to look bad in 10 years? And we found a perfect, we found a case study. We were like, it's been used at the Frankfurt Airport. We will show you lots of photos. And they said, okay, has anybody here been out to the Frankfurt Airport in the last couple of years? And somebody had. And they said, did you see it? And they said, oh, it looked really good. And we, we went through that whole case study. And so they're always – they're all conscious of what everybody else is doing and they all talk about the real successes. If, if there's a, and then, and they're all obviously, if you work at an airport, you're a traveler. And so there's this, there's this knowledge base that's sort of through constant communication and constant watching of each other that leads to, um, a celebration of successes. So if, if there's something that works really well, you'll start to see it in the next five projects down the line. Um, as people see this case study and they, and they talk about what they can learn from it. I'm I'm curious um talking about how they they kind of communicate with uh security that's a huge issue we talked a little bit about it already but Ben have you noticed or are aware of how much security has has impacted design um especially in the United States where we had this fixed infrastructure of airports and then after the terrorist uh, attacks you're basically shoehorning this new um, functionality to the to the whole system. Um, how has that impacted it? And and going forward, how are are there anything that you guys are any technology or anything that you guys are looking at to improve that process? Because it's one element that kind of slows the whole um, usage down of going through yeah. security checks and whatnot. Absolutely. So before we get here, I just want to say I'm old enough to have remembered flying pre-TSA. Okay. And I just want to, for, for those of you that can't, I'm just going to state the obvious here that prior to 2001, you could more or less walk without a ticket into the concourse. You could get all the way up to the gate. You couldn't board the plane, but you could, you'd have unfettered access to the airport. Everybody could come. Your family could meet you at the gate. They could, they could, they could walk around. They could shop. They could do all those things. And now we can't. And this is a global thing, right? Yeah. Everybody's adopted these standards. And so if you go to a, a terminal that was built prior to 2001 and you look at what the spaces are like, you'll notice two things. You'll notice, well, it, you'll notice more than two things, but some of the major things you'll notice are there's not enough space for security. There's yeah. not enough lanes. There's not enough queuing space. There's lots of things ways that they're trying to uh, adopt that you'll notice a really big ticketing hall big ceilings and you know really 
it's really celebrating grand. that 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 experience that is empty because everybody's gotten their ticket ahead of time using their phone and they're want to get through that security line <laughs> and so they're in they're they're in the on the concourse side and then you'll notice the third point which is that people are spending more time waiting at the concourse side because they don't want to go to that ticketing hall and so the concourse is more crowded and there's not enough space for food and beverage there's not enough space for retail things are cramped there's not enough seating at the gate because people are sitting there and they're waiting especially if it's a southwest flight and they want to make sure that <laughs> somebody's not stealing their b29 um so you'll, those are the things. You'll, there's a misfit between the programmatic needs of the of the post 9/11 airport and the realities, which is why many airports finally make the decision to replace terminals instead of doing really intensive renovations. Uh, airports are 50-year facilities, um, at least. So a lot of a lot of the times they will they will hold. You know, there are a lot of airports from the 60s and 70s that are still completely valid, but it, increasingly. Those kinds of decisions, they will instead of cho choosing to go back to the bones and uh, and extend the life of that airport after those forty or fifty years, they're tearing it down and they're starting over, and that's the primary reason why. Now, things that can help, obviously, making the airport nicer helps, and making the security process uh, better lit, better suited helps. There are are some technologies. Um, so TSA handles domestic flights, uh, Customs and Border Protection handles um, international flights. And I just finished a cutting edge uh, international arrivals facility in San Diego where we got to use all the new bells and whistles, which included, uh, we're proud to say, the, one of the first truly integrated biometric uh, facilities, which it's uh, it, what this means is that they use uh, photographs and other kinds of biometric information in lieu of uh, paper to identify passengers. So hmm. if you've flown internationally in the last couple of years, you're used to seeing these big kiosks called APCs where you go up, they scan, you scan your you, their self-service, you scan oh, your passport, yeah. it puts up this little coupon. We don't have those. Instead... Your photo is discreetly used early to identify that you've gotten off the plane. And, and assuming that you have a recent passport photo and you look like that photo, you'll walk up to the, to the front. They'll take a really uh, – they have very special cameras that um, aren't fooled by things you might try to use to fool a camera. And it'll verify that you match that photo. They will have pre-vetted you by, by making sure that you are, you've gotten off the plane and you just walk through. Hmm. This speeds up people's uh, – processing times by an average about 15 minutes and uh which doesn't sound like a lot until you see what that does to the line so that combined with some other things mean that people especially business travelers are getting through the airport much much faster than they were in the past and it's really uh and it also lowers the operational costs for uh the government because they don't have to have as many officers standing there mm -hmm. uh that are literally just stamping things so that's been that's a, a situation where I feel like technology has has led to a really drastic improvement in uh, passenger experience, and we're hoping to see. You know, we're 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 evangelizing this now. We're trying to get other airports to adopt this technology. It's very new, and it's still kind of they're still figuring out all of the belt, all the ways that it it can work. But they're definitely seeing an improvement in people's arrival experience with, uh, especially you know, American travelers. Uh, with it, with it, you know, no real impact, uh, no, no negative impact on security. So, and I saw something about uh, the possibility of uh, adopting sort of the fast pass 
type of uh, setup, like Disneyland, uh, going through security and, and having it sort of timed, I believe. Have you heard anything of, of that? Uh, so there's that it's not. Yeah. So there's a there's lots of other kinds of things that that are technology that are, are being examined. And some of those are um, there's some, what's called mobile passport control. And mobile passport control is basically using a combination of um, uh, mobile apps and near field communications and things like that to use your phone to help track passengers. But, you know, there's there's other things that are so, for instance, uh, airports have one way that they've used passive technology to, to help passenger uh, experience with um, with really anything that involves a queue is they'll put in uh infrared queue monitoring cameras that just all they do is look at the length of the line and because they have contracts written with uh service providers like tsa that say the line's never going to get longer than x it means that they can as soon as they know that the line is too long they can call somebody up and say you need to add a lane right now because the line's getting too long and that's been uh great at making people less frustrated and so you know sometimes the, the these technology improvements aren't that don't need to be super cutting edge, super sophisticated. Don't require, most importantly, don't require the passenger to be high tech. The mm -hmm. best, most of the best technologies here are ones that work in the background that you don't even know they're they're happening, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's been, I, I think that there was a rough ten years in there when uh, post TSA, uh, post post 9/11, where TSA and airports were figuring out what made us safer and figuring out how to make processing times um, as efficient as we, as they could. And, and we're in this uh, maybe second round of this where we've sort of figured out the way things are working. We're looking at incremental ways of making it better for everybody. And there's, there's a broad base of, of improvements that, that are, are being, you know, like the invention of pre-check and things like that, that have, have made things better for a lot of people. Um, I don't see any of, you know, obviously security is not getting less important at the airport, um, but hopefully it can become, we can, they can find ways of making people more secure while not uh, inconveniencing, well, while inconveniencing people less. And that's been the real, I think, goal of everybody in the last, uh, you know, since, since this started and it's starting to gain, gain traction. Yeah. One question I had on the, would I, found related to security is i don't know if trend is the right word but something that i'm seeing in airport design more so in recent years than i certainly remember as a teenager or even a kid when i traveled is the separation um, between people that are arriving to an airport and people that are departing from an airport where now when you arrive you don't you know, you get off the plane and you're sort of in this very secluded hallway that leads you directly to either another security checkpoint if you're connecting to another plane or literally directly to the baggage claim with no additional opportunity for sort of having that airport shopping experience. Is that something new or is that just something I'm being more observant about? So for domestic arrivals... I think that that's not necessarily they're trying to have that not happen. But for international arrivals, you're absolutely right. And I, this has always been somewhat the case, but it's definitely in the last uh, 
few editions of standards been uh, kind of rigidly enforced that they do not want um, retail or advertising or any of these things coming into that uh, up to the point of the passport check. So from the point you get off the plane to the where you are cleared and you enter American soil, it's you really they keep a very close control over that network of corridors and they don't there's not it, it's it, the standards are written such that even things like benches and trash cans are very consciously placed and restrooms so it's a it is it is hard to enrich that experience and our and what we tried to do and on the last time we did a space like that was using things that we were allowed to use like public art natural light color things that weren't necessarily programmatic but were more um experiential to try and enrich that experience of literally walking through uh, a long corridor and it, it, it the funny thing is that passenger flow dynamics are something that you 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 internalize as well when you're when you're doing these kinds of spaces and a lot of the times long corridors in those kinds of spaces are by design because if you have too short of a corridor between gate and um for instance a processing checkpoint you'll get the huge point loads because um people will you know, you you have a wide body jet and 500 people come off that plane and then they all go to the same spot and you need to have a half a mile of corridors to let these people kind of meter out into a, a, a stream that you can, so that they're not all showing up at the same time. And, uh, so it's a really good you know, point. It's, it's, it's difficult. It, there's a lot of challenges to creating a pleasant human experience because a lot of the ways the mass travel um, especially international travel has so many challenges. People are jet lagged. People speak um, a dozen languages, individual people, but you've got a dozen languages spoken. They come from all walks of life. They come at their all ages, all sorts of different um, needs. And then they're also stressed out. They're worried. They're, they're sort of, a lot of them have never been to the, where you're, where they're coming into. And so a lot of it becomes, uh, for that, this is a situation where the that balance between being bored and being scared is very heavily weighted toward uh, keeping people from panicking, right? Keeping avoiding the nervous breakdowns and soothing them. And so we try to create these environments. Um, for instance, providing a lot of natural light so people's you know what just know what time of day it is, which you would take for granted anywhere else. But uh, when you're in a corridor. Um, waiting to get checked by a federal official, um, and there's no windows. Hmm. Your mental state it can be helped greatly just by being able to look out a window, see where the sun is. Uh, That's and a good point. Things. <laughs> so you know, we, we do, there... do you design do you do, do you design advertising space or does that come after? Because you mentioned like so these long corridors where you can use art and color and light and those types of things. Um, what about advertising? You know, you, you get these gigantic billboards sometimes in different um, different corridors, and I'm I'm curious: is that way after the fact, or is that actually sort of contemplated really early in the design stage? It's absolutely contemplated early in the design stage, especially since um, a lot of advertising these days needs power and data, uh, so you have to make sure it's all fed um, and integrated with the architecture. Um, however, there's also they're constantly looking for new locations to put ads. And so there's no guarantee. We finished this building um, 
last year. This isn't advertising, but it's a, a, it's my favorite. It's a built. It's very um, kind of mid-century looking. It's it's boxy. It's got this recessed uh, recessed entry, so it's sort of like a floating box, and it's a it's a kind of uh, bluish green glass. And uh, they for the holidays they 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 didn't tell us this but they put this giant they decided to look like a present box and so they put this giant bow on top <laughs> to make it look like a huge gift and um these kinds of this is just them they finished a project and they've got uh the airport has stakeholders that are just thinking about advertising or just thinking about special events or just thinking about um tenants like food and beverage or retail and so afterwards they will identify opportunities that we didn't see in the design process and they'll go in and they'll make modifications on the spot and so there is a there is a sort of a uh, airport operations involves a, a constant rethinking of, of of function if they're doing the right job so we plan ahead as much as we humanly can but um frequently uh after a couple of years um you'll see uh, they'll be looking and they'll see how people are actually using the space and, and things will start moving around. And, um, so that, the, you know, there, there's, a getting paid a pro to renovate an airport. That's a, that's, that's two or three years old to do a, a spot renovation of is a pretty common activity because they are always looking for ways to make things incrementally better. Um, so there's always these tiny projects to improve a corner or add an info desk or, um, you know, renovate an area so that you can put a bar in a corner that they didn't think anybody was going to want to hang out. But it turns out people are all showing up in this one spot and they want something to drink. So um, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of sort of um, there's a lot of people watching involved and, and you'll, uh, you don't realize when you're in the airport, how many people that you see might be uh, just you know, airport executives that are are taking a, a detour to walk through an area and see how it's going when a certain flight gets in uh, and, and watching the operation to make sure that everything's going as smoothly as they hoped. Huh. That's interesting. Hey, Ben, before we let you go, I had one more question for you. So moving forward, what's one or what what's the primary thing in your opinion that you think designers, uh, contractors should all kind of consider uh, consider moving forward to, to improve airports. The thing that I've been focusing on for future projects uh, is this idea of the sort of micro environment at the airport and, and thinking about experience in a way that encompasses all the senses. And so a lot of the, the failures that we see in projects have less to do with the obvious things than than the things that are hard to draw, like acoustics or smell or um, the immediate line of sight, color, things like that. And so we're all, I think that finding ways of thinking about experience in the richest and most detailed way possible is something that everybody should be incorporating into their toolkit right now. Um, and, uh, and there's so many new tools. We use a ton of VR and we use a ton of... Uh, of a video presentation and things like that to just show what it's like before you're there. Yeah. And uh, you can't really do that enough, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, this was a wealth of knowledge. Um, have to go back and listen to this a couple of times. Uh, but thank you again for doing this. Really appreciate it. 
um, wanted to to give Gensler a shout out. Uh, the website is Gensler.com, right? Yep, G-N-S-L-E-R. Okay, so if you're interested in checking out mo- checking out more uh, about Gensler, um, Gensler.com. And if you have any questions, comments, uh, thoughts about this particular episode about airports, feel free to reach out, hello at spacespodcast.com, or you can always reach us on social media, Spaces Podcast, and that's everywhere. And thank you again for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and forward the link to a friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. And if you just stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Also, check out spacespodcast.com under the Listen tab for photos and notes on things we talked about today. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next. Or if you're listening as we put these out, hope to see you at our live recording on Monday. Thanks. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.